Hi again, I'm Jack Lissenberry, and welcome or welcome back to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. This is sort of an evolution of the commentary I wrote and the radio commentaries I did for many years, so I hope you enjoy and keep listening. You can also catch up with my writing and any essays and podcasts you might have missed on my website and blog, LessonberryInc.com. That's ink as an ink pen. One of the best things about being a journalist is the interesting people you meet and the fascinating and complex stories you they're often part of, and I'm here to share them with you. So please settle back and listen. Stay tuned afterward for my signature essay. And if you enjoy it, please go to my website and subscribe. Now for today's topic. Charles Eisendrath is a cherry farmer from East Jordan, Michigan, <laughs> who's passionate about hunting and fishing and all the other aspects of life up north. But he also had a life as a foreign correspondent in France and Argentina, helped uncover the French connection, and was nearly killed during Pinochet's coup in Chile. Later, he became a professor at the University of Michigan, went on to revitalize and raise millions for what is now one of the nation's most prestigious journalism fellowship programs. Along the way, he came to know virtually every important player in national and international journalism, and now has written a fascinating memoir, Downstream from Here, A Big Life in a Small Place. We are lucky enough to have him here with me in the studio today. Charles, welcome. Great to have you, Jack. Well, you've been teaching me since I was your graduate student more <laughs> years ago than either of us would want to admit. I think and it was mutual. I'm, I'm, going, <laughs> I'm going on. What made you write this book? I'll tell you what made, you, made me write this book. I didn't really intend to write a book. I wrote an essay every summer when we were right. at the farm. I'm an academic, or I was an academic. That gave me time to do that. I'd throw them in a box and not look at them. And then uh, when, when I was coming up on retirement, I thought, better look in that box, see what's in the box. I expected 75 pages and found 350. Wow. All of them about uh, some aspect of my life as a correspondent or a professor or something. But they most, I found they mostly had ties to the farm. So I thought, oh, my God, this is a book. Now, this is a farm that your grandfather established. This is a farm that my parents bought in the 1940s when, they, when it became clear to them that the United States was actually going to win World War II and they could make a commitment something somewhere. So they bought the farm. And uh, it was a... Uh, in a good way, when they said you bought the farm during World War II, they Sorry. indicated something else. Yes, indeed. They, uh, they bought a farm, um, and they bought it... Uh, it was... It went like this. It's not a bad story. My father was a great indoorsman. He didn't, he didn't like anything in the outdoor world. My mother loved it, and her father, my grandfather, adored it. Uh, her family went to Charlevoix every summer, and my father loathed Charlevoix <laughs> because of the social life that his in-laws put him through. And so at some point, he called the real estate operator, Earl Young, who became famous for designing the mushroom houses up there, and said, Earl... Find me something with a body of water between me and my mother-in-law. Earl Young. That's <laughs> Earl right. Earl Young. And Earl writes back and says, Dear Bill, there's a nice farm, and you have to take the Ironton Ferry from Charlevoix. He bought it sight unseen. Wonderful. And, and, and it, was not, it was not glamorous at the time. It was not glamorous. It had no, had no electricity, had no running water. It had no nothing. It was an old, broken-down uh, catalog farmhouse from Sears Catalog. Wow. Uh, built in 1900, and over the years, they fiddled and fiddled and fiddled, and pretty soon it was habitable. And you came to inherit it? I did. Well, and you, so you grew up sort of up north part of the time. Your family was from St. Louis. Yes. There's never been a, uh, a year when I didn't spend a few days, at least, in northern Michigan. In my family, by the way, if you said Michigan, everybody, to my family, it meant one county, actually one town, 
right. and a couple of other little towns in the northwest corner of the lower peninsula. Detroit was somewhere else. That's right. It was not part of their mission. No, no, no. Well, it seems to, uh, you sort of have always had this bifurcated life. I mean, you were you started with the Baltimore Sun, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. You were a foreign correspondent for Time magazine. Yeah. And um, so you're living part of your life in Paris, with some of the most sophisticated people in the world, mm-hmm. and part of your life up north with, uh, um, as one old-timer up there once told me, oh, yeah, I, Charlie Eisendrath, he was that boy that went off to work for Time magazine. <laughs> did, he, did he ever come back, they said. <laughs> he came back, sort of. What I found, Jack, is that each one of those worlds loved stories about the other. Uh-huh. All the sophisticates in Paris loved my stories about Mike and Spike's uh, standard service station in East Jordan. Right. And uh, all the people in East Jordan didn't know really what I was talking about sometimes, but they liked the idea that I was running around. Someone they knew was running around the world trying to talk to them through Time magazine. Now, this book sort of reflects both of that. Yes, it does. And... Uh, I realized that uh, the real importance of a second home, and all of you with second homes, something, please listen to this. There are between six and seven million of us in the United States. Oddly enough, the U.S. statistical abstract doesn't know really how many there are. In that huge volume, which journalists like Jack and, and I use all the time, that's the only place I've ever been where they're not sure, and they say so. Anyway, six and seven million of us have these places. Mine is, I'm fortunate enough to, to have one that is a multi-generational one, but I found that it is, quote, unquote, a second home, but it's really the permanent residence of my soul, and I think that's true. That's where you live. Life. That's where your that's heart where I is. live. That's where my heart is. That's where my best thinking has always gone on, at least since we came back from overseas in the 70s, and that is where my dreaming goes on. And that what I like about it is that everything stays there. All my mistakes are still around. All the things that my parents and grandparents and in-laws did, not my in-laws, but my, my cousins and uncles and aunts did, they're still there. A tree they planted, a field they made a mistake with, what they did with the woods, it's all there. Now, sort of, you are a person of both indoors and outdoors, primarily outdoors. Your wife is from a sophisticated Washington family. Did it take her some time to get used to life up north? And, you know, it, the miracle was my wife had never been on an airplane before I met her, and uh, she, her family was very sophisticated. She's related to Justice uh, Benjamin Cardozo, the famous uh, Supreme Court. Right. Her uh, maiden name is Cardozo, right? Her maiden name is Cardozo. And uh, she came with me on her first airplane trip, uh, she didn't like it at all. She still doesn't like flying, and we can talk about our plane crash later. And that's in the book about she was <laughs> almost killed in a plane crash. You both yes. were. Yes, we were. Uh, but anyway, uh, she took one look at it, and she thought about the farm the way I thought about her, which is wrap it up. I'll take it. Great. That's great. So, so she's always loved it. And this, you've been married for more than 50 years. 52. 52. So something, something's going right. But it's uh, something is going right, and all the research and all the, all the uh, thinking and worrying and hand-wringing that the current generation does about finding a mate and going online and re- researching people, I don't think it works one bit better than walking into a room and say, oh, my God, she's it. Spoiler alert, there was no tender in 1967. <laughs> That's, uh, um, talk sure. about the title of this book, A Big Life in a Small Place. That was something I wasn't sure I wanted. Now, that was the editor's idea. She was a brilliant editor, but we had to. She thought we had to have some way of conveying 
that I wasn't just talking about a river. Right. And uh, that's what we came up with. I think it does the job. I'm a little embarrassed about the big life part, but it was certainly a wonderful life, and it certainly went all over the world. So I, eventually I said, okay. <laughs> well, tell me, uh, from you, and I want you to put on your salesman hat. Okay. Uh, walk into books. There are still bookstores that exist. You walk into a bookstore, and there are big biographies of Churchill and Donald Trump and Lincoln and everything else. Why should someone read your book? Can we have, I'm putting on my hat now, can we have our studio technician bring in my hat, please? Bring your hat, we'll get, we'll get him to bring your hat in. So Good, I need, I need my hat to really do this properly. Okay. I love hats and I love bow ties, and if Jack had told me I was going to be on camera, I would have worn a tie, but I didn't. But uh, Here the, comes my hat The now. art of tying a bow tie is a lost art. Good. It is. Thank well, you. Wonderful. There's okay. your... For well, the, does, do I have to wear these? <laughs> no, of course not. Well, Good. for the uninitiated, what kind of hat is this? This is an English hat. This is a mm. John Law cat from London. Uh, I love hats. I have lots of them, and uh, I wear them with great joy. There was a time when all men wore hats. And if you don't have any hair, you get to do anything you want with the top of your head. That's my theory. That, that's exactly. But I'm supposed to be selling the book, right? That's right. Why should someone buy and read this book? It's a fascinating book, but why would the average person pick it up? I think I hope they would pick it up for a few reasons. One is that um, they would read a lot about what uh, a sole residence, a physical place, a house, a piece of property, right. does to deepen your feelings about lots of things, about nature, about your family, about your own gene pool, about what you can do, what, about what you can't do. So there's that. There are observations about nature. Here's one of my favorite ones. Uh, I'm not a religious man, but I am a spiritual man, and I've always wondered at the following thing. If I take up north my truck, and I, let's say I want to move a bush or take it out, let's say it's a big lilac bush, I can try to dig that up and pull on it with a winch. I have right. a winch on the back of my truck. If it's a big, if it's a big bush, the, uh, the, winch, the, ca the car or the truck will go to the bush. Can't get it out if it's alive. If it's dead, you hook the same arrangement up, and it comes right out of the ground. Mm. So there is some strength simply in life. Does that mean there is a God or not a God? I don't know. But I do know that life is an amazing quantity that we don't know enough about. As Thoreau said, one world at a time. One world at a time. <laughs> exactly. There's another, there's another case that you might consider. It is the average broadcasting tower. Right. Very, very tall, very slim structure, which is held in place by guy wires all over the place. Right. And uh, I wondered about that one summer when I was writing about something that I didn't feel like writing about, like a scholarly essay in gobbledygook English. And uh, so I looked up the tallest buildings in the world to get their footprint. And uh, the ratio of the base to the height in a really, in a really tall one and really slim one was about 400 to 1. Then I went and looked at a one piece of blue stem grass, um, an infinite, infinitesimally small, I'll hold up my finger like this, diameter, and it stands eight feet high. Back to life again. Uh, in the spring, it grows from April to September, and it grows to eight feet tall, um, and it does not blow over. No guy wires. No guy wires. The, the ratio is about... 1,400 to 1. Nothing holds it up. But at the end of its lifetime, 
when, when the first frost comes, it falls down. Mm. Take that. This is a, a, a broadcast tower with no guy wire at all. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's certainly something to think about. Now, you're a, you're a hunter and you're a fisherman in an age when at least the first of those two occupations is seen as somewhat dubious by the political correct. <laughs> I, I wrote an essay uh, called, called So Shoot Me, I'm a Hunter. And it was the experiences of a hunter in a politi politically correct place like Ann Arbor within a super, super politically correct place called the University of Michigan. And uh, it was it was the first piece on hunting that the Chronicle of Higher Education ever ran. Wow. And I was thrilled about that. I got lots of mail, positive and negative. Um, but I have news for your viewers and your audiences. Fishing is hunting. Mm -hmm. You just don't do it with a gun. You do it with a hook. That makes sense. And uh, I love it. I don't think either one of them is a sport. Matter of fact, I resent that. It's a pursuit. You're going out to kill something and eat it. And uh, that's, that should not be a sport. Right. Uh, so I take it very seriously. Uh, I Catch and release for me is a fishing, is a quandary. Uh, I don't like the idea of just hurting something so that the next time it gets hungry, it gets pain again. So what I do, my own, my own approach, is I fish until I have as much as I'm going to eat or my family is going to eat or my dinner parties are going to eat. And then I stop. That sounds fun. That sounds logical and sustainable. It's sustainable, and it's enough. Mm -hmm. So we just finished duck season. I was out with my sons and my grandsons in Walpole Island in Canada. We had a wonderful hunt. And at some point, I said, that's it. We're going to stop. Um, and they, they understood. We had enough ducks. It's not like you're not like the hunters that killed all the buffalo and left them to rot. <laughs> no, no. I hate that idea. Yeah, I'm curious about, um, you were born in 1940. You yep. grew up in, you were often in Charlevoix, East Jordan, the 40s and the 50s. Yep. Detroit, southeast of Michigan, looks nothing like it did back then. Is up north still recognizably the same? It is recognizably the same. And my sons, when they come back, my son is now 50, the oldest one, comes back and says, he just sighs and says, northern Michigan never changes. Right. Now, for me, it's, there's been a lot of changes, huge changes, but he doesn't see it because he started much later than right. I do. The feeling of northern Michigan has not changed. And in this book, uh, the opening essay is what happened when our sugar shack burned down. We, uh, I bought a little sliver of property to restore the, uh, the whole piece of property that my father uh, had sold off. It was an old quarter section, 160 acres. It included a sugar shack. And I thought, well, I'll, um, I'll get this geared up again. Tell the uninitiated what a sugar shack is. They probably think <laughs> it's a song from the 1950s. You know, that would be a great song title. Right. Well, there is one. I, I'll sing if you play the banjo. I would not do that to you. <laughs> okay. A sugar shack is a, any kind of a building in which sugar maple syrup is boiled down into, I mean, maple sap is boiled down into syrup. Right. It usually is some kind of a shack. Ours was. And this one, we, um, I decided to make it a, a more going operation and make it a commercial uh, thing like our cherry orchard was. We have a small cherry orchard on this property. So, of course, uh, we didn't think about it, but the, all the pipes got a little hotter than they had been. The, uh, the old cedar and pine that had been made of were a little older and drier than they had been, burned to the ground in 20 minutes. Wow. And the story, the beginning of the introduction to the book, 
is what happened after that. Uh, it was gone right at the middle of sugaring time. What happened was uh, a load of firewood was dropped off with no explanation uh, at our house. Uh, the kind you would need, exactly the right length you would need to boil maple syrup. No one asked for this. No one took credit for it. But people up there monitor police scanners. Then another load came. Then another load. And the, uh, the man who sells maple equipment lived across the straits up in the UP. On a Sunday, he hadn't a crew. He hadn't a truck. He found a trailer somewhere, overloaded it with the entire stuff, entire uh, range of equipment we would need to get back into operation and drove it down on a Sunday. We were boiling within four days and, uh, no, we were in business in four days and we were boiling in six days on temporary, uh, under temporary cover. But that still is not the end. So what happens when you have a loss like that? You call your friendly insurance agent. What did I expect? <laughs> not much help, but eventual recovery of some sort. Not at all. The insur insurance agent, too, came from northern Michigan. He said, Mr. Eisendrath, I'm sure uh, that you're just at the beginning of your season, and if you don't get, don't get going soon, you're done, aren't you? And I said, you got it, 100%. He said, well, we're going to have it inspected, and if there's no problem with arson or anything else, and I'm sure there isn't, we'll get you a check the next day. Wow. And he did. Wow. So you were back in business. We were back, not only back in business, we were paid uh, half of the eventual recovery up front. That's just absolutely amazing and sort of heartwarming. In, in this it case. is heartwarming, and I don't think it would happen every place in the world, but I think it, it happened in northern Michigan, and I think it happens in small places all over the country. Now, what can someone learn from you? have a life, as I said. You're, you're, you spent all this time up there, but then your other life, you're in the most sophisticated circles possible, you know, hobnobbing with editors and publishers and uh, um, people from Pinochet to Gorbachev. What is that contrast? What can someone learn from that? I think what people can learn from that is, number one, the excitement of leading more than one life at the same time, which you can do if you right. decide to do it. And second is how really similar people's reactions are and how the fancy people, several wonderful people from that other world that you're talking about, Tom Brokaw, Christian Amanpour, Jeff Daniels, Ellen Goodman, people like that, what they say in their descriptions of the book, their reviews of the book, which are printed in it, uh, they express envy that you can actually combine this one thing with the wow. other, which to some degree they all try to do, some with more success than others. You should have a button that says, Christiana Amanpour envies me. Like, uh, <laughs> Not a bad idea. <laughs> Not a bad idea. Well, let me talk, talk a little bit about journalism, since well, you spent your life doing that. You're still in touch with it, and you're not in the pay now of any journalistic entity or any university. And I'm free. Have, you have a party line. Uh, it looks to the average person, the average education person, like journalism is in a bad way. We know that newspapers' circulations are plummeting far far below the floor anyone thought they could go. Um, there's uh, all these scandals. It's hard to tell. There are no Walter Cronkites. What do you think, what's the true state of American journalism? Well, that's a little bitty little topic that in you 25 <laughs> words or less, that's right. <laughs> Let's separate journalism from uh, the industry of journalism. Right. The industry of journalism has, has, as we knew it, let's say in 1980, is unrecognizable. Right. It's, it's largely gone. 
the practice of journalism is something totally different. We have just gone through a moment sort of like 1456. I'm not getting that wrong. 1456, the date. That's the, the date that Gutenberg set movable type in Germany. Uh, he caused a revolution, revolution in print, but it also quickly became political. The Protestant Revolution could not have happened without right. the, the printing press, among other things. It initiated a period of 100 years' worth of war. Well, uh, we're going through one of those moments now, and we should not for a moment forget that uh, the digital revolution is also political, and we are just at the beginning of trying to figure it out and deal with it. So what happened first? The, uh, the weak sisters, intellectually weak sisters, the ones that had confused their product uh, with their profit margin, and concluded that the profit margin was really what the deliverable that they were delivering to their stockholders. Uh, they concentrated on that and not their actual physical product, their newspaper, their television, whatever. Some of them clearly still don't seem to get it, as you see in the they gateway. They still don't get it, and they are disappearing one one after the other. They merge with each other, they they devour each other, and then one or two of them disappear. It's as if you were saying, "I'm going to give you less maple syrup in the bottle every year and charge you twice as much." It, that's the exact correct metaphor, and it, it, it uh, dovetails with something I do have in the book. One of the few exceptions is the New York Times. It it's, has always been run by a very stubborn family who just wants to put out a good newspaper. Right. They do want it to make some money, and it always has, um, but it makes single-digit profits generally and is happy with those. Um, the Gannett Company, under Al Newharth, decided a newspaper could make 70% at 7-0%. Right. We can't do that. Newspapers have print, paper, and talent. You can't get rid of the newspaper. You can't get rid of the paper. You can't get rid of the ink. So it's no, it's no, no mystery that uh, newspapers more interested in the profit margin got rid of their talent, the most expensive talent, first. And so now... The average age of newsrooms, I remember in the quaint days when we worried if newsrooms were too old. That's right. Ha! I mean, that, that's hysterical. Now the average seems to be, to me, about 12. And it's, you know, they're good kids. They're working hard. Um, but the interesting journalism is going on elsewhere. Right. It's going on in places just like this studio, where startups are, are, are going all over the country. They will eventually become the new establishment. They already are in places like Austin, Texas, Minneapolis, some other places where startups have happened. If you want to look at it in a different way, uh, at a different scale, uh, the, the Washington Post was having terrible problems uh, before uh, Jeff Bezos bought it. Two, two of its staffers were so upset that it went out, they went out and started Politico right. right next door and began to beat the pants off the mothership, the Washington Post. The joke in the industry is that Jeff Bezos really just wanted a subscription, but he clicked on the wrong button. But, <laughs> but anyway, he bought the paper and has poured money into it. He poured money into it, but it's, it's where he poured the money in it. He, poured, he did it exactly reverse of the way uh, the profit boys were doing it. He started with talent. He bought the most expensive talent he could get his hands on right. and, and, bought by the, and, and hired by the dozens, including the top editor. And lo and behold... Build it, and they will come. Advertisers came. Readers came. It is now, once again, a thoroughly national newspaper. So the end of your question is, what's happened to the, um, the industry? Unrecognizable, uh, but rebuilding. And what's happened to the journalism itself? The best are doing beautifully. The New York Times has never had this many readers 
<laughs> Neither right. has the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post. The Economist, the British publication, is going gangbusters. We think of it as a newspaper, as a magazine, but they call it a newspaper. They call it a newspaper, but it is a magazine. It's an online news entity, whatever you want to call it. And close to my heart, Time had a near-death experience. Uh, Newsweek had a death experience, but, but Time was slim, boring, and going south. Until about three years ago, I have always taken it, right. for sentimental reasons, it began to gain weight. And the best way to judge journalism is to hold it a few inches above the table and drop the newspaper right. or the magazine. If it's thin and flutters down, it's not healthy. Right. If it's fat, Plops. Yep. you don't need anything more sophisticated than that. Those are called ad pages. So it now has at least two or three articles that I can't find anyplace else that are interesting. It's come back it to be a version of its cheeky old self, and I'm, I'm thrilled. But... Uh... You and I know how to find good journalism. The average, there are no water cronkites. And how does the yeah. average person, and, and, and is the decline of journalism linked to the sort of anomie that's going on in this country? Yes. The, um, we are um, split as a country, divided as a country. I don't think that's anything new. No. Uh, I think what has happened is that we have not found a way to listen to one another. Uh, and that is still in progress. But there are, I, I get very unpopular in Ann Arbor when I say out loud at a dinner party, as I did last weekend, that thank you very much, the news part of Fox News is quite good. It is. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the screaming heads. On the hand, other hand, the screaming heads at MSNBC, which say things that are much closer to what I believe, are also screaming heads. And if you only uh, listen or watch them, you get half the story. And when there's a major event, if there were a huge earthquake tonight, God forbid, mm -hmm. people turn into CNN. Always CNN. And CNN is trying to do what it was set up to do, and it does it pretty well. And uh, its ratings are lower because people love to hear what, they've already, what they already believe. But I don't think that's healthy for the country. Right. I think, Jack, we are going through a period now that, um, I mean, it, it scares me to death, but I'm also... Uh, at bottom, I, I'm, an, I'm optimistic. This, the United States always goes through, every 50, 60 years, it goes through a period like this. I think two things. I think the metaphor I use is I think we're sort of like the world when all, after all the dinosaurs died at once. It took, <laughs> it took some millions of years for it to be clear that this hairless ape would come down from the trees and dominate everything. That wasn't clear for millions of years. But I, don't have, I have a less colorful uh, uh, comparison. I think it's very much like, like 1930. Mm -hmm. uh, there has been a stock market crash. Our economic system is headed for the tank. It's right. going downhill, and nobody knows what to do. And we elect, a, of all things, an aristocrat uh, who comes from old money, who does all the imaginable things, tax the rich, right? tax his own people. He was hated for that. I'm going to get back to the book in a minute about FDR. But at any rate, uh, unlikely uh, beyond belief, and it works. Uh, I think we're in a moment like that. I, I don't know who's going to be elected, but I think this is going to be a sea change moment, just as the 30s were. Uh, and, and I think the, what will end up is a different political structure, 
just the way the 1930s and 40s and 50s produced a new economic structure. I think it's worth reminding ourselves, too, that the, the era we grew up in, the 1950s, we sort of had this unusual bipartisan consensus, I think driven in part by the Cold War and the Fairness Doctrine. So we thought of the world of that being normal, but throughout most of American history it hasn't been. Back in the Revolution, you have ideological papers calling each other worse names if possible than today. In the, 19 oh, yeah. in the 1930s, it was just Detroit Free Press during one campaign in the 19th century. At the bottom of every page said, vote Republican to save the country. <laughs> so, so there is some of that. But uh, anyway, summing it up, you've, learned, you've, you've lived, even though you're extreme, extremely useful, you've lived a long life, had this fascinating profession, had this anchor up north. Is there a lesson in that for how we should live our lives? I think there is. I think there is, it's this, um, sometime in your day, go back over what you think your own gene pool is, who, what, what, uh, what goes into you, which part of your, which part of your ancestors, and you don't need ancestry to tell you this, just the ones you know of, what made you the person you are, what did your mother, what kind of a person was she, what about your father, your grandparents, what did they do? And um, if you have a place where you can take refuge for extended periods of time, it might be just your backyard. It doesn't have to be a right. second home. And you stare at, the, stare at the plants and animals around you and think, um, how can I do better than this? I think that's the key. Wow. Well, that, that's uh, something to keep in mind. Any final, any final thoughts? That's the final thought. Well, this has been fascinating, and if you agree, I want you to encourage all to go out and get a copy of Charles's book, Downstream from Here. I have two, one downstate and one upstate. Um, I want to thank Charles Eisendrath for leaving, leaving the farm to come to our studio. I wish he would have brought some cherries, but that's not the right time of year. And also, you could have brought a duck. You could have brought a duck. And also thank everyone who donated. I guess we'll just have to wait, go to Charlevoix and go to Terry's and get some duck. But thank everyone who donated to help fund the production costs of this podcast podcast, including my former student, Heather Quain, a woman who doesn't know what it means to quit, and Michael Dowlin. If you two would like to help keep these podcasts going, I'd be thrilled if you send a contribution to me via PayPal on my blog, lessonberryinc.com, or in the mail to Zing Media Group, 186 North Street, North Main Street, Plymouth, 48170, or message me on Facebook or via my blog for more details. Again, please check out my blog, lessonberryinc.com. Click the button, subscribe to both my podcast and my other writing. The price is right, absolutely free. Listen to more episodes, tell your friends, and I'll see you next time. This is Jack Lessonberry with the Politics and Purchases podcast. Stand by for my essay, and I'll see you soon. They say the living well is the best revenge, and Charles Eisendrath's story is one of the best examples I know of a life well lived. He found a way to have a distinguished journalism career and still have a rewarding life during and after it. When he dies, hopefully many decades from now, I don't think that on his deathbed he'll wish he'd worked just one more year at the Baltimore Sun. And while I'm worried about what's happening in journalism in this country, I'm also aware that in some ways I'm mentally and emotionally guilty of being set in my ways. Yes, I have to admit that secretly, I sometimes long for a world that would essentially be 1985 with Google. But at least I have the good sense to know that I am, in many ways, an old fart. The FCC doesn't regulate podcasts, and I'm paying for this one, so I think I can get away with saying that. Still, I also try to keep in mind two sage observations. 
When Ed Koch was still first running for mayor of New York City, an elderly woman came up to him and said, please make the city like it was. Koch said, looked at her, and he said, lady, it was never like it was. More recently, Ariana Huffington, founder of the Huffington Post, was being grilled by a congressional committee as to whether her Internet publication was hurting journalism as a whole. In her famous charming accent, Huffington said, while she, while she hadn't been around when Gutenberg first built his printing press in 1456, she imagined that the makers of stone tablets felt that he was ruining the business, too. There's an explosion of access today. I can find out more on the Internet and see more on cable and smart TV in my den tonight than anyone in 1980 ever thought possible. But as I see it, there are two major problems facing journalism. The decline of traditional advertising-based revenue has hurt nearly all forms of old media, but has been hardest on local newspapers. There are plenty of bad newspapers in the old days, owned by cranks or characters who covered up for their crooked friends. However, today there are a growing number of towns without any newspapers at all, which means no watchdogs to watch over city councils and school boards and others with control over public policy and public money. That's less of a problem on a national or even a statewide level. You can, if you want to, find out more about what's happening in Lansing or, or Washington or Columbus than you could ever before. What is a problem is there are no universally trusted news presenters, arbiters, or even agreed-on standards of truth. Everyone can be a publisher, but these days there are few editors. Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, said last week, the GOP is now a thoroughly corrupt party, overwhelmingly fanatical, corrupt, or both. He believes the big question is that America, as we knew it, could long endure, and one of its two major parties has effectively rejected the principles on which our nation was built. Journalism knows how to expose corruption. We don't have any answers, but the people elect not to pay attention. This is Jack Lessenberry. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you again soon.